Hey everyone, before the big Hi Guys intro, please may I request of you to subscribe to and rate this podcast, as apparently that's really important in the algorithmic world that is podcast land. Once again, please subscribe to and rate this podcast. On with the show. Hi guys, and breathe. Mm, now come on, breathe properly. Do you even know how to breathe properly? The New Science of a Lost Art is the subtitle to the book written by this week's guest. His name is James Nestor. I think this, along with Philip Schofield's book, makes it my dual pick of 2020. This book is so instructive, it's so insightful, it's so enlightening, and it's so useful. So listen to the guy, buy the book, Breathe better, live better. It's the first thing we do when we're born and it's the last thing we do before... Oh, we don't need to go there. Cue the conversation. So what does it feel like to be a guru, Jeff? (laughs) I wouldn't know. I have no idea what it feels like to be a guru. (laughs) I know what it feels like to be an exhausted journalist uh, and I'm, I'm feeling that right now. But beyond that, all is good. James, you are a guru, I'm sorry, because, you know, for a, for a master to become a master, first they are the student, and you have become a, sh- a student of breathing via your book, um, and you are my, my you are now my go-to breathing guru, so you've got to deal with that, I'm afraid. I'm afraid you're going to be terribly disappointed by that. I can give you the words and the science and the practices from gurus, but I will not be donning that crown anytime soon. No, I've, you're appointed. You have no choice in the matter. I have, I have coronated you. I relinquished that, that title and that crown. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, right, first of all, thank you for doing this because you've already been on the show once. Um, you were on Joe Rogan's show. That's how I sort of came across you. Then your book came here. I can't remember, actually. I think the, both, the two things dovetailed. Now, I know since be- you sent me the loveliest email ever after appearing on our show. Um, I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure your appearance on, on Joe Rogan's show with 1.4 billion listeners a year was quite useful, though, as well. It was, but, you know, I really enjoyed talking to you. Your, enthousi- your enthusiasm for this subject really shined through, and uh, it was just a, a huge pleasure for me. So 10 years in the making, your book, it's called Breath, Everyone. It is the most useful book of the year, bar none, in my opinion. And you you started, your journey with breathing began because of surfing. So tell us about your, first of all, your passion for surfing and how it ended up in this amazing book. So I live in San Francisco and I live about 15 minutes from the surf here. And it was always a way of keeping myself sane. I grew up surfing in the water in Southern California. The water is much colder up here, but that's what wetsuits come in handy for. So this was several years ago, maybe 11, 12 years ago now, where I kept getting bronchitis. I kept getting mild pneumonia, even though I was eating right, even though I was exercising all the time, I was sleeping well, all that other stuff. But my breathing was completely out of whack. And a doctor suggested I check out a breathing class. And in San Francisco, those are a dime a dozen. So I picked one down the street from me, went to it, and had this completely bizarre experience in that class. Okay, can you describe that for us? Why was it so bizarre? Well, not only was it bizarre for what was happening mentally, I felt like I was in this dream state. And this was just by breathing at this very simple rhythmic pattern. I was in this old house in this cold room, legs crossed in this corner. 
And suddenly I started sweating profusely. I mean, not just a casual sweat that you get when you're jogging, but I sweated through my t-shirt. My hair was sopping wet. There were sweat blotches on my jeans. It was just completely bizarre. I'd never experienced anything like that. So I went back to my doctor and I said, you know, what had happened? You're a doctor. You know about this. And she said, oh, you must have a, a fever or the room was too hot, or you were wearing too many clothes. So she had no idea what happened. I talked to other people, and they had no idea either. So as a science journalist, I wasn't going to write a memoir about breathing. So I just filed that in the back of my mind for years until I met freedivers. And then the whole thing blew open. I really learned the true potential of breathing, where it could take us. So you went to meet the freedivers for another assignment, was that? I did. I was working for Outside Magazine, and they sent me out to write about the world freediving competition. I'd never seen anyone freedive before. I didn't freedive, didn't know much about it. And I saw these people take a single breath of air and dive down 200, 300 feet, you know, 100 meters, and stay down there. Some freedivers can stay down for seven, eight, or nine minutes at a time. This is supposed to be scientifically impossible. The body shouldn't be able to stay down that deep for that long. And yet, lo and behold, these people are doing it every day. So it really expanded my view of where breathing could take us, human potential, and so many other things. So you, so you had the need yourself, and then you experienced some kind of um, uh, remedial effect, and then you um, experienced a fascination. And those two uh, added together were enough to, uh, to serve as a catalyst for you to embark upon a full-blown uh, assault on a, a book? Was it instant or was it an essay or was it an article or what? No, it was a very slow process. Just year after year as I was getting deeper into free diving and exploring that world and writing about the human connection to the ocean, which is what I did for my first book, Deep, I kept collecting stories that didn't fit into that view, into that particular book including a story about a guy who was shot up with E. coli and breathed himself back to health, including someone who breathed their scoliosis away. I mean, just insane stories that didn't seem real, but the scientific studies supported it. So this was a, over several years I was just chipping away, and this was in the back of my mind until finally about four or five years ago, I just went into it full time. I said, I need to dedicate my full time job to this and get into this world and try to understand it. And so, you know, in a crime investigation department, they have a murder wall and they start to... You've seen one of those, haven't you? Have you been... I bet you've actually witnessed one for real, haven't you? I've seen a few and I've seen Usual Suspects, which has a pretty good murder wall as well. Exactly. So did you have similar a similar kind of... Um, the beginnings of a jigsaw with regards to breathing and you was, you started to see connections and piece things together and you thought, I've got to find out the whole story here. I've got to crack this mystery. Is that, is that how you, how you sort of, uh, how you framed it? This is borderline creepy because you must have had spies over here at my house about five years ago. I had this huge cork board and I had about 300 different notes on this cork board and I was moving these notes around to try to get some semblance of an idea of how to get into this story. And every names would change, different practices would change, different scientific articles would change. Because when you talk about breathing, you're talking about the whole human body and how the entire body functions. You're also talking about the atmosphere, you're talking about biochemistry, biophysiology, on and on and on. And I couldn't figure out how to put this into a 
a short book that, you know, the general audience would enjoy reading. So that process took such a long time of just moving those puzzle pieces around until they started to fit. I love it. Okay, so um, your breathing murder wall, you know, the more you compile it, what happens then is you come you come up with a timeline, okay, and obviously breathing, I would imagine, starts with us whenever we started, and you go, okay, well, this, the chronology of that is from then to now, and then obviously there's there's breathing to be had in the future, let's hope, for heaven's sake. But then when you go to tell the story, you know, maybe perhaps it's not best to start at the beginning, maybe you dive into the middle, you know, or, or wherever you can capture your audience's imagination or engage them best to begin with. So how did you make your decision with regards to that? I plotted everything out per this murder wall, which I've never used that phrase, but I absolutely love it. And I thought I had my head around this. I thought I had a very clear way of getting into it, starting with evolution, you know, working at the beginning where I'm, I'm talking about simple breathing, the foundation of breathing, how you can breathe to get healthy and then human potential at the end. And so in nonfiction, you write a proposal and, and you sell the book on that proposal and it's about 60 pages long and you have all the chapters and all the characters. So I spent a long time on that proposal. And then when I got into the field, about six months later, I had to throw about 90% of what I had found out because the story was so much deeper and so much weirder. And I completely missed uh, the, the real depth of what was going on here. And I didn't see it at the time because I was just working behind my desk. But when I got out in the field and started talking to researchers and seeing what they were doing, it completely turned everything on its head. I had to start over again. And so where was the depth in the rediscovery or the new discoveries? Was it, was it in the history? Was it in the effectiveness? Was it in the, the, the enigma of breathing? Was it in the fact that it's the biggest news? It should be, you know, forget breaking news. It should be breathing news. We should be waking up every morning to breathing news, but we're not, which I find insane. But then again, we live in an insane world. So, so where was the depth from your point of view, the new depth? I was talking to a researcher out in New York City, and he was explaining that there's a reason why so many of us breathe so poorly, why 50% of us snore, why 25% of us suffer from sleep apnea. Uh, one of the reasons why we have asthma and allergies and upper airway resistance syndrome. And he said, because of our evolution, there's been the shift in human evolution that has made us the worst breathers on the planet. And I thought, what are you talking about? My understanding of evolution was survival of the fittest natural selection. We're getting better and better all the time. He said, no, that's completely false. Here's the number of someone that can tell you more about this. So I went into a lab with the largest collection of ancient skulls in the world, and I was absolutely floored. So you look at these skulls, they're all in these beautiful walnut cabinets with glass over them. They're skulls from thousands of years old to a few hundred years old from all over the world, from Africa, from Asia, Europe, US, on and on. And they all have perfectly straight teeth. They have these extremely powerful jaws, these huge nasal apertures. They're beautiful, perfectly formed, no braces, no orthodontics, no anything. Then you look at modern skulls. I can look in the mirror, see my own face, crooked teeth, this flat face, this narrow face. When you have a mouth that's too small for its face, teeth have nowhere to grow. So they grow in crooked. And if you have that too small of a mouth, that also means you have a smaller airway. It's harder to breathe. So this is one of the main reasons why so many of us are breathing so dysfunctionally, because all of these changes that occurred in our evolution. Okay. 
let's go back to that later. Let's go back again now. So that's the physical history of it. As far as um, uh, the, the furthest history of it's concerned, you have suggested in the past, and I believe you, um, that breathing may well have been the first superpower um, where one tribe or group of people may have had an advantage over another. Well, breathing was regarded as a system of health. This was a technology for thousands and thousands of years. And it was as important to many cultures as what you ate or how much you exercised. In ancient China, there were exercises specifically designed to get you breathing differently because the benefits of these exercises, they attached to the ways in which we breathed. So this had been going on for at least 4,000 years. You know, and that's where it dates back to the Indus civilization at the border of India and Pakistan and Afghanistan. And different cultures at different times would find the same thing, these same practices and find benefits in them, name them something different. And then this just went on and on and on throughout history. And you could stay out longer, you know, if you could breathe better than the, the tribe next door, if you like, and, and you, you, you were more powerful. Absolutely. If you're exerting so much energy by over-breathing, by breathing through your mouth, so all of these things make you less efficient, whether or not you're a warrior or whether or not you're just walking around or your father or whatever, it's going to eventually wear your body down if you're breathing in this dysfunctional way. So they had very elaborate systems of breathing for optimum health. Now, you have said uh, also that as languages, different languages die away, um, different um, sort of uh, knowledge dies away. And you, you, this is you know spoken knowledge methods that are passed from one generation to another, you know, not necessarily written down, you know, and if not, they're not written down or there aren't pictures, you know, etched on walls and hieroglyphics or geoglyphics or whatever, uh, they're going to get lost in time, let alone lost in translation. How much of that have you discovered? Are, are there any gaps in breathing story? Well, we, we don't know how much we've lost and we know it's a significant amount. If you look at how much knowledge we've lost in, in libraries and when Alexandria, had, you know, was up in flames, how much human knowledge we've lost, whether or not it's philosophy or medical knowledge or, or what, we, we just don't know. But what we do know is enough of these practices have been passed down and enough of this history has been passed down to realize and acknowledge that there was this vast system of health built upon breathing. And what's so great about being in our modern world nowadays is we have instruments to measure this stuff so we can figure out if it really works and clearly see with data what it's doing to our bodies. And so much of modern science is really bolstering what these ancients have known for thousands of years. Okay, let's go back to a thousand years hence. Um, what can you tell us of people who were good at breathing around the 1100s, 1200s? Anything much going on there? And then? Well, our facial structure was still very healthy. We had straight teeth, which meant we had wider airways. It was more easy to breathe through our noses. We know that from the skeletal record. We know that yoga was really booting up at this time. So the yoga sutras of Pantanjali were written about 2,000 years ago. So this is when they really started to codify and categorize breathing practices 
for health. It had been passed around as an oral tradition for so long. And this is when they really started writing these things down. In the Western world, from what I've found, breathing practices were, were nil. I, I haven't really seen anything beyond the Bible, but, you know, that's 2,000 years old. It's, it's talking about, uh, you know, God blew uh, life into the nostrils of man, not, not the mouth of man. But uh, for the most part, it was it was really lost for us. And that was in the Dark Ages. So much else was lost as well. Tell us about the opera singer, the opera singing um, lady uh, <laughs> who, who she, she didn't make state claims herself, but it was stories were told about her breathing um, that seemed unbelievable and have since been proven to be true. So this was an extraordinary story of this Belgian, French, anarchist, free-loving opera singer by the name of Alexandra David Neal. And she went off alone in her 40s to the Himalayas for 14 years on this spiritual quest to learn more about Eastern meditation, breathing techniques, and everything else. And she was traveling at, you know, 18,000 feet up in the Himalayas, like extremely high elevations. And she had found this breathing technique that had been passed down to her by a, by a llama to keep herself warm. And so she would just breathe in this way to keep herself warm. And she said, yeah, everyone up here is doing this. They were wearing really thin sheets in the winter and they could breathe this way to keep themselves warm. So this book came out in the twenties and, you know, a lot of medical professionals and doctors thought it was complete BS because there was no one out there to take pictures of her or to document this. And it just carried on uh, for, for, you know, 50 years, 50, 60 years. People just thought that this was uh, a fictional tale that she had made up until Herbert Benson at Harvard Medical School finally went out, found these monks who were able to do this, put sensors all over them, and found out that it was 100% true. We can breathe in ways to keep our bodies warm. We can breathe in ways to dry a wet sheet if it were placed over us in a cold room within a half an hour. And all of this was published in Nature, which is one of the most esteemed scientific journals in the world. And still people have a hard time getting their heads around it, but it's all true. It's all true, and there's video, isn't there? <laughs> there's there's video, there's data sheets, there's, you know, Benson's a serious researcher. And so he documented this meticulously, and it's been since been documented as well. So still, when I've mentioned this to some doctors in my family, they're just like, oh, that's that's crazy. And we move on to talking about politics or whatever. But to me, that's where I find this. When you find those cracks in research, that's where things get really interesting. Is What else don't we know about the human body and its potential? What else can we prove from these ancient methods that can benefit us now? I love the fact that they thought it was crazy, so they moved on to politics, because that's not crazy at all. <laughs> yeah, completely sane conversations <laughs> with politics all the time, especially here in the U.S., very, very I, civilized. Yeah, U.S. and B.S. have a certain ring to it when it comes to politics. But anyway, let's not go there. Um, and Forgive me, I don't mean that as an insult whatsoever to you particularly, but um, is there a film of the guy drying the sheets? I've not Because I've not come across this yet. To be honest, I've not looked for it, but is, is that out there? He's at, I believe he's in uh, Herbert Benson's uh, video, original video, uh, where he went up to Dharamsala. There's been several specials. I think there was a BBC special. I think there was a PBS special about this as well. 
And so those those videos are freely available for people. And I would suggest that people read the scientific article in Nature where Benson talks about these people being able to reduce their metabolic rates by about 62%, which is as low as anyone has ever recorded. And yet they're able to heat their bodies up, which makes zero sense in our understanding of the human body. And no one would believe it if these guys weren't there doing this. So, so the film specifically is the, a film of a man who is drenched with a, a sopping, a dripping wet sheet, and he then dries it within half an hour with his body heat. That's right. And, and I will look for that film as well. <laughs> oh, dear, this is so funny. You talk, by the way, you talk about everything so beautifully. You know that you, you know your subject so unbelievably well. And I can, because I, I know you've done interviews in, in different orders and long interviews, long form, short form, you know, and you've been interviewed in print as well. Um, and you know your book inside out. You know, was it always thus, or is this just a language that you've learned over the last six months while you've been promoing? Well, I think that you start to get into the subject when you're writing about it. When I get into a subject, it's not like I clock on at, at nine and clock off at five. All night, I'm reading books on the subject. I'm talking to people. I'm thinking about it. It enters my subliminal space. I, you know, you really have to live within that world. And luckily, this was a subject I was completely fascinated with, endlessly fascinated. And I still am even though I have been on interviews for, for six months, I get so excited about it because I've seen people utterly transformed by this stuff, by something so simple and free and available to everyone. And so it excites me to get this out into the world and tune in more people to what's going on here. Um, we by no means finished yet, but how are you going to follow this? What's next, by the way, literary eyes? I have an idea. Uh, the idea of of sitting in my office and starting another book makes me a little queasy to my stomach. So I'm just going to sort of chill a bit, uh, stay in the breathing world for a little while. We're hoping on turning some of this into a series. Uh, there's a lot of talk about that, but Hollywood people love to just talk, talk and talk. So we'll see if that's that becomes real. But um, yeah, uh, I have an idea. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. I was going to say, because for me, you know, and again, it's an observation. It could be a judgment. I apologize if it comes across that way. But this is your, for me, this is your dark side of the moon. This is your, this is your Mona Lisa. This is your, this is your M&Ms, mate. I mean, this is it, isn't it? <laughs> well, if you put it that way, that's extremely depressing. That I have nowhere to go but but down from from here. And I would be, I would be completely fine with that. But there are so many more mysteries in the world about the human body, about our potential in mm. medical history. And I've seen just in the time that this book has come out, I've gotten in contact with various people and seen things that have absolutely blown my mind that at right when I saw them, I thought there is no way this is real, but it looks like they are real. And if they are, then it's going to redefine our view of our own bodies and possibly our view of our own health. And so that's the next subject. But again, I'm just very slowly picking away at it right now. Okay. And you're not going to give us more than a glimpse into that. I, I get that. I understand that completely. But can I ask you this about it? Is it as freely available and literally as under our nose, not quite as under our nose as breathing is, but pretty close? It's a little further down. And no, it has nothing to do with, <laughs> it has nothing to do with, with Trump. Uh, so not the zero, zero to do with politics. Okay, that's good. That's that's very, very good. 
Let's talk about the people involved in this now, some of the key figures. Uh, first of all, let's talk, is, is his name Swami Rama or Swami Rami? That's, that's, a, that's exactly right, Swami Rama. Okay, tell us tell us about this this individual um, and the fascination um, which he holds for you and now for me and and why other people need to find out about him. So I found some very weird research that a French researcher went to India in the 30s with some instruments, with an EKG and some other inch, primitive versions of modern instruments. And she found these yogis were able to stop their heartbeat for, you know, seconds at a time, just with their mind. And one guy I had read had been like buried for a little while and came back out and he was alive. And so in the 50s and 60s, someone else went out there and, and found that, yeah, there's these people who are doing these things that are just unreal. And they documented it as well. But this was all published in academic journals. So no one really read it until this guy Swami Rama came on the scene. And in the 60s, he went to Oxford for a little while, then he came to the US. And he had spent from the age of about three or four, spent most of his life studying yoga, studying breathing, studying meditation up in the Himalayas. That's where he was born. So this is a guy who really lived and breathed this stuff for decades. And a bunch of researchers had heard these stories that he was able to do these miraculous things. And of course, they called complete BS on it. So he said, hey, I'll come into the lab and show you some of my tricks. And he went to the manager clinic, which was the top clinic in the US for psychiatry, for training psychologists and psychiatrists. And a Navy physicist checked him out. So a real hard ass dude, you know, this guy's not messing around. He's using the latest instruments. And they they found that Swami Rama, just sitting in a room, could move the temperature on his hand, on a sink on one hand, 11 degrees from one side to the other. One side was gray, the other side was flush with blood. Then he went to stop his heart for about 30 seconds at a time. But when they looked at the studies a little more clearly, they found he wasn't stopping his heart. He was making it beat at 300 beats per minute which is medically impossible that someone can survive. It's called a heart attack, atrial fibrillation. And yet here it is in the studies that this guy is doing this. And later his, his fellow yogi said, oh, that's nothing. He can do so much more. He didn't want to scare you guys off. So this was published in scientific papers. It was published in the New York Times. And it just kind of came and went, right? People scratched their heads. They said, that's weird and moved on. But to me, that was so exciting that we have these abilities that, again, are so far outside of medical textbooks. And we don't even realize it. We aren't doing anything with these. And they could really help us to maintain proper health throughout our lives if we focused on them. Yeah. And why aren't we focusing on them? This is stop the traffic stuff as far as I'm concerned. I completely agree with you. And this was a question I kept asking these researchers at Stanford, at Harvard, at top institutions. I said, obviously, this stuff is real. Here are hundreds of different studies on this conducted at leading institutions over the past 70 years. Why isn't everyone talking about this? And one, they, they gave me a couple 
of explanations. They said, one, some of this stuff takes a little time. You know, a lot of us don't have time to sit and focus on our breathing, which I didn't totally agree with because this is breathing is different than meditation. Meditation requires you to sit in a dark room. We know there's benefits from it. You know, you're staring at the Buddha for 30 minutes at a time. A lot of people aren't going to do that, but we carry around our breathing with us all day long. So we can improve our breathing and improve our health, whether or not we're sitting in front of a computer or we're eating dinner or we're just hanging out. So this is so much more accessible. And, uh, you know, some of it, uh, the more crass researchers who have been in this field for decades, 30 or 40 years said, well, there's a reason we haven't really heard about it because there's no way of making money off this stuff. There's, there's no economic incentive to teaching people about breathing. And to me, I found that that was one of the most scary and sad things I've heard in a long time. It's right up there with childbirth. You know, I mean, the, oh, the fact our skin heals, you know, or the fact that the, the sun rises every morning, and it doesn't actually, does it, of course, because it doesn't rise, we go around it. But, you know, we rotate around it. But the most fascinating things are real magic. But because we can't claim them or own them or franchise them or license them we've we've sort of we sort of weaned ourselves off being awestruck by them every day that's you know if you if you want one to hold up one example of of how come humanity has become insane or evidence of it having become insane it's right there for you isn't it yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It seems like we've moved so far away and have put all of our faith into modern technologies and modern medicines. And don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of Western medicine. My father-in-law is a pulmonologist. My brother-in-law is an ER doctor. These people are saving lives. If I'm in a car accident, I break my leg, I don't want a breathing therapy. I want to go to the ER and get this thing fixed properly. But I think what what people aren't really considering is that Breathing is this foundation of, of health, just like eating, just like exercising, and that to acknowledge it and understand it and use it, we can bolster our health and we can prevent so many longstanding, uh, extremely widespread chronic problems. And I know this is a huge claim, but the science is very real on this. Uh, it's right in front of our faces. It's right in front of our noses, so to speak. And I think that's one of the reasons people uh, sort of poo-poo it, because they, something this simple shouldn't be this powerful. And yet, as the science clearly shows, it is. So let's uh, dive into that now. So uh, let's talk about hypertension. Let's talk about the survivors of 9-11. Give us some um, scientifically proven examples of how breathing can have, can have immediate benefits and at worst, no, no negative side effects. So what people can do is if you have a blood pressure monitor, this is something that, that I do quite often. I have borderline higher blood pressure. It's not too bad, but you know, I'm getting older. It's starting to get, get up there a little bit. So if you just breathe at a rate of about five to six seconds in and about five to six seconds out, you can extend that exhale just a little bit. I've seen my blood pressure drop about 10 to 15 points which is better than any modern medicine. And there are various breathing techniques and there are studies that have shown this, that if people adhere to these slow paced, deeper breathing practices, they can have a measured effect on their blood pressure. So this makes perfect sense when you consider the body. So what moves the lungs what allows you to inhale and exhale is this diaphragm, this huge muscle underneath the lungs. 
It turns out that that diaphragm works as a pump for blood as well. So some people have gone as far as saying the heart is a secondary pump. The real pump is the diaphragm. And if you're breathing very shallow and you're breathing a ton of breaths per minute, 20, 30 breaths from, per minute, you're just increasing pressure in your body as opposed to taking these very fluid, easy breaths. So this is not some woo-woo new age psychic stuff. This is the basics of how your body operates. And once you become aware of that, you can use this to affect your blood pressure, your heart rate, and so many other systems in your body. Okay, and tell us about the 9-11 survivors. So with the same breathing technique, Dr. Richard Brown at Columbia University started treating people with anxiety, with depression, anorexia, and more. And he found that 9-11 survivors had this awful condition called ground glass lungs because they had inhaled all of this noxious fume from uh, when, when everything went to hell there, when, when the, the Twin Towers blew up. And nothing else could help these people. He tried herbs. They tried uh, prescription drugs. Nothing else helped them. But by breathing fluidly in this way, he was able to help restore their lung function. So this is not only works for blood pressure, it can restore lung function because what you're doing is you're bringing in the most efficient, the maximum amount of air into your lungs, and then you're exhaling that air in this fluid way. So less air is stagnant and gets caught in your lungs. So I thought that was an extraordinary story. And again, this stuff is free. The The last, you know, the worst thing that's, that's going to happen for you is you're going to feel better. And that's not too bad. So so um, I have a friend who suffers from, um, I think it's called parrot's lung or something like that. And she used to have parrots and she, she was fine and she couldn't breathe and it was getting really serious and then she was taken into intensive care. And uh, it was discovered that it was to do with the dust in her parrot's feathers and it had somehow gotten into her lungs and it was not dissimilar to what you were describing with regards to the 9-11 survivors. Um, and I presume this, this would be able to help her. I need, to, I need to literally phone her straight after this, don't I? <laughs> well, I, do, I want to make perfectly clear. I'm not a breathing therapist. I am not a doctor. I'm not here to give prescriptions for, for anyone. I'm a, a science journalist who went into this world and was lucky enough to learn from these top experts. I will, having said that, I've seen people transformed by various chronic problems by adopting simple breathing habits. And if you look at the work that Carl Stow did with emphysemics, these people left for dead, he was able to restore their lung function, have them walk out of the hospital. So I can't say it's the same thing. I don't know, uh, but it would be worth exploring. I know that Patrick McEwen is a top breathing therapist. He's in Ireland. He's been doing this stuff for 20 years and he's worked with various people with various problems. So that might be a good connection for her. Yeah. I was going to get on to him, actually. There's four people I want to talk about. Uh, so we've talked about Swami Rama, and we could talk about him for at least, well, at least a day. But let's get on to Patrick McCune because you mentioned him. I was going to leave it till a bit later. But So Patrick McCune has written four books on this, um, but he, this is not what he intended to do with his life. And you, you've sort of fallen into the same trap, James. But um, So tell us about Patrick and his story. Well, I, I found that this, this same arc kept uh, popping up whenever I was finding people in this world, no one intended to research breathing, but breathing kind of came to them either by necessity or by curiosity. And Patrick is certainly one of these people. I call them pulmonauts. So Patrick was a business major and he had everything, you know, scoped out in his life. He was going to go on, I'm sure created this an extremely successful business and live, live happily ever after. The problem was 
he had severe allergies and severe asthma. It got very, very bad. And he was given bronchodilators, oral steroids. Both of these things work wonderfully to keep the symptoms of asthma at bay, but they do nothing for the core problem of asthma. And after extended time taking especially oral steroids, asthma can get worse and it can lead to autoimmune diseases, osteoporosis and all that. So he discovered this breathing technique, of breathing this very slow breath, this very easy breath, trying to breathe efficiently, always through the nose. And he's no longer on asthma medication. And this was 20 years ago. So he reversed his asthma and had the same epiphany that I had years ago. He's like, why isn't everybody talking about this? The science is clear. So he's, he's such a good dude. He gave up his, his previous ambitions in life and dedicated himself to being a breathing therapist who uses science-backed breathing techniques. And he has transformed thousands and thousands and thousands of people by breathing alone. And such a great guy, smart dude. He runs virtual classes. And the fact that he was there and he was sick and overcame it just to me speaks volumes as well. So there's two people that we've mentioned. Uh, just for fun, can you guess who the other two might be? <laughs> um, hopefully not Biden and hopefully not Trump. Please don't no. don't go down there. Good. Thank, thank you. Thank Stop you. Stop us from breathing. They don't start us breathing. So who, who might the other two be? I, want to I, I have no idea. Come uh, there's, on. There's quite a cast of characters in the book. I've, I have no idea what you're going to pull out here. Okay. Well, I'll leave those two to later. So you touched upon a nose breathing there. So now let's talk about nose, not versus mouth, but nose over mouth. So um, let's get on to the importance of it. Let's get on to why... Um, why, why our, our nasal uh, passages have narrowed and um, the self-sacrifice you put your, your own nose through um, to come up with another chapter of gold for your book. So I had been talking with the chief of rhinology research at Stanford. I'm lucky enough to be very close to Stanford, top research institution in, in the world. And I had had many interviews with this guy and he kept talking about all the benefits of nasal breathing because when we breathe through the nose, we force air through this gauntlet of different structures where it's heated and it's pressurized and it's conditioned and it's moistened. I mean, on and on and on. And no one was really refuting that. People who study this stuff know this. And yet 25 to 50% of the population habitually breathes through its mouth. So by breathing through the mouth, you are making yourself more susceptible to respiratory problems. You tend to breathe too much, which stresses you out. It can change the structure of your face if you do this. So uh, this whole laundry list of problems. And again, no one was refuting this, but nobody really knew how quickly these problems came on. Nobody had tested it. So I asked him, I said, well, why don't you test it? You know, you're you're a leading expert in this field. And he's like, oh, I can't do that. I don't have time. So we ended up putting together, I convinced him to, to put his lab up, to dedicate his time, to dedicate staff to doing a 20-day experiment where uh, for 10 days, I was just going to be breathing through my mouth. I was doing this along with a breathing therapist from Sweden who on his own dime flew out here to San Francisco for a month to have his nose stuffed for 10 days. And then for the other 10 days, we we're just breathing through our noses. 
So we were stopping to breathe through our mouths, breathing through our noses, and we we're collecting data the whole way through. And a lot of people thought that this was some sort of, my friends thought this was some super size me stunt or whatever, but it really wasn't because we were lulling ourselves into a position that so much of the population knew, but we were recording data. That That's what was the difference behind it. And it was awful, but I'm happy I did it. It, it revealed a lot of things for me. <laughs> You can't leave it there. There's so much more to it. It reveals a lot of things. Okay, tell us some of the things then. I felt I was rambling on too long. I'll, no, I'll, I'll wait, just, I'll We've got all the time in the world. <laughs> okay, okay. I tend to do that. My, my wife tells me that all the time. So anyway, uh, but back to work here. So so what, what we learned when our noses were plugged and we were breathing just through our mouths. So I thought that some of these problems would be starting up after a few days, right? But they started up right when I drove back from Stanford. Within a, a couple hours, I was like, oh, I feel awful. Uh, you know, I wonder if it's just psychosomatic or what. So I checked the numbers, checked my blood pressure. My blood pressure was higher than I'd ever seen it in my life, about 15 points higher. I said, well, that's weird, uh, but I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep. So that night, for the first time that I'm aware of, I snored. And I snored for an hour and a half. And two days later, I was snoring for about four hours throughout the night. I was suffering from sleep apnea, which is different from snoring. Sleep apnea is when you start choking on your tongue. It is so injurious for your health. It's been linked to Alzheimer's, to type 2 diabetes, to uh, cancer, on and on. And we know all that, right? But the fact that just switching the airway through which we breathe can affect the body so profoundly, so quickly, was shocking. And what was also shocking is poor Anders Olsen, this very healthy Swede, was <laughs> suffering much worse than me. His, his sleep apnea was off the charts, and he was snoring four or five hours throughout the night. And he looked awful after a couple of days, just as I did. And we thought, are we going to be able to make it through this these 10 days? And then we thought about all the people who are breathing this way all the time and don't realize how their breathing is so closely linked to so many chronic problems. Right, so you and your Swedish pal, you went to prove, uh, you did prove that it was better to breathe through the nose than through the mouth. All the time? So we, to be clear, we were just supporting what the science has clearly shown for right. 30 years. This was a very... I wanted to experience this stuff firsthand. Okay. I wanted to collect data and and work with a Stanford researcher for just to, to add to what we already knew. And after the study, we found so many studies linking snoring and sleep apnea to allergies. Seasonal allergies go up, snoring goes through the roof. So does sleep apnea. So, so we had known this stuff for a while, but it's something altogether different to feel this in your own body and it and utterly frightening. Okay, so the opposite of that, you know, if you're going to tape up any orifice, um, what you need to do is ta <laughs> uh, above above the waist. Uh, you're gonna you need to tape up the mouth at night, which you still do. Now, I I haven't yet done this. I've been aware of it for three or four months. I'm a bit scared about doing. It. I don't know why. I think I've done scarier things, but you still tape up your mouth. Tell us about the advantages of doing that and the advantages of breathing through your nose at the most during the most important hours of the day, which are of course our sleeping hours, not our waking hours for our body. That is. 
So it's easy to take control of, of your breathing during the day, right? You're conscious. You can close your mouth and you, yep. can, you can force yourself to do that. At night is this whole other story. You're, un, you're unconscious. Your muscles relax. Your mouth opens up. And I had thought this was completely normal. Throughout my life, as long as I remember, I've gone to sleep with a huge glass of water next to my bed because I'd wake up every couple hours, mouth's dry, take a hit of water, go back to sleep. But this isn't normal at all. This means that I'm sleeping with my mouth open. And there are so many problems associated with that. So the trick is, how do you close your mouth at night when you're unconscious? And I had heard about people taping their mouths. I went on YouTube and it looked completely sketchy to me and completely idiotic until I went back to Stanford and talked to the doctor of speech language pathology. And she said, oh yeah, I prescribe this to all my patients. I use this myself to overcome my mouth breathing. And I talked to Dr. Mark Berheny, who's been doing this for decades. And these are people in the field. These are clinicians and experts who have been prescribing this to patients. And what they told me is this is not a fat piece of duct tape across your mouth. And a lot of people think of some hostage situation or some bondage situation. This is not that. This is a teeny piece of tape with a very light adhesive that you place just at the center of your lips. The point is not to inhibit airflow into your, in, to inhibit all airflow into your mouth. It's just to train your jaw shut at night. And once I did this, I had much better oxygenation throughout the night. I felt so much more refreshed. The data was showing that. And I've heard from probably a hundred people who had mild snoring, even moderate snoring, and mild to moderate sleep apnea, who have written me and said, hey, since I've been doing this, I no longer snore. Why hasn't someone told me about this? I've been snoring for 50 years. Uh, even my father-in-law, a pulmonologist, did this and, and was completely freaked out by how effective it is. Again, it's a free thing. I'm not saying it's going to work for everyone, but why not give it a go? I'm a firm believer at this point. And, and again, the science and the data truly show that it's benefiting me. And do you still do it? I would love to say I don't, uh, but I just don't have the jaw structure. I look over at my wife, who has much better <laughs> jaw structure. She doesn't need this stuff, right. you know, but whenever I don't, I wake up with this dry mouth. I wake up tired. I wake up uh, feeling crappy. And so now I bring this tape around all the time. I realize it's super weird, but there's nothing weirder than living your life snoring and having sleep apnea and just breaking your body down every time you go to sleep. Yeah, it's not the weirdest thing going on in the world, let's face it. Right. Um, what else do you do at night that you can tell us about in your mouth? Because I know there's something else going on. I could take that the wrong way. I'm just going to keep this above board here. Uh, uh, nothing illicit. Uh, that I used to wear a device because uh, I have this underdeveloped mouth because I had braces, I had extractions, I had headgear, and I was breathing through my mouth a lot. And so I had heard about this practice where you could gently open up the upper palate of your, your mouth. And I know this seems completely sketchy. And by doing that, you would help to open up and tone your airway, allow you to breathe better. Along the way, if you chewed, you could increase bone density, you could actually model new bone in your face. And the reason why our skin starts sagging as we get older, especially around the eyes, 
is because we're losing bone and skin has nowhere to go but down. So a lot of people use this device to stimulate new bone growth and to uh, look better, look younger. That was not what I was interested in doing. I was interested in trying to fix my awful breathing. So I wore this thing for a year. I took a CAT scan before wearing it and a CAT scan exactly a year after and found that I had incredible improvements to my airway, about 15%, maybe even 20% in some areas. It opened up uh, pus and granulation stuck in my sinuses caused by upper airway resistance syndrome went away and I've never breathed better in my life. And again, this is, it's one thing for me to say this anecdotally say, yeah, I feel great. This stuff worked. It's another thing to look at the x-rays and to look at the data. So you don't need to wear one of these things. I was just doing it because it sounded so bizarre. It sounded so impossible. I wanted to see it from the inside, but just by doing some simple oral pharyngeal exercises, you can help affect your airway health and help open up some of those passages and breathe better. But also, James, you've got to you've got to say this on the air because I've heard you say it before. You did you did get a few comments, complimentary comments from your friends about about your appearance. It did happen, you know, uh, especially from my father-in-law. Uh, this was after two months of wearing this thing. He said, "Holy crap!" He's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa." He couldn't believe how how different I looked. Uh, maybe I was looking much worse than I, I usually look. I don't know. I don't want to be the judge of that. But it was not subtle what, what happened to, to my face and to my airways. And that's that's what I wanted to make very clear. These exercises, these things that you do, even though they seem so simple, the effects that they have are not subtle. And I'm sure being able to breathe more easily 20,000 times a day is going to benefit my body in the long run as it's benefited so many hundreds of thousands of people who've learned other practices. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I first did hot yoga in Los Angeles, funnily enough, um, you know, two or three sessions in, my I could see the change in my body. When you do the right things, you know, it's not instant, but it's pretty much, it's not quite overnight, but it's it's pretty quick. It's pretty quick. And, and again, people with very simple technologies, if you have a pulse oximeter, if you have a blood pressure monitor, if you have a heart rate variability monitor, you can breathe in certain ways and you can watch after just a few seconds, your body changing. And if you can change your body after a few seconds or a few minutes of healthy breathing, imagine what's going to happen after a few days or a few weeks or a few months. It's going to benefit you in a profound way. And no one's refuting this. But the fact that people aren't considering this as a foundation of health is still sort of beyond me. But I think that word is starting to get out. I just talked to a researcher at Yale. I talked to another one at Stanford. And they're all excited to start booting this stuff up and, and getting the word out there. And that's exactly what needs to happen, especially now amidst a pandemic that is robbing us of our ability to breathe properly. Yeah, absolutely here, here. So I'm just about to, I think, I think I'm going to sign up for another course of Invisalign, teeth straightening. Um, I, I did, I went through this hell, because it is hell, you know, it's it's it's, mm -hmm. it's mouth hell a, a few years ago. And then I, I didn't put the retainer in at night and they'd gone crooked again. And, you know, again, it, it, it improves the shape of your face, a little bit more um, self-confidence and things like that. Um, but you have also talked to people in orthodentistry saying we might be doing the right thing 
the wrong thing here, thinking we're doing the right thing. Can you speak to that for a bit? So the first orthodontics that we were using, first uh, functional orthodontics we were using, did not remove teeth, did not cram remaining teeth into a too small mouth. They expanded the mouth to allow the teeth more room to naturally grow in straight. And by expanding the mouth, you also expand your airway. And they've used these same devices with kids and found these kids who were snoring, had sleep apnea, had other breathing problems, no longer have these problems. And they get straight teeth along the way. So again, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is The New Science of a Lost Art. This art really isn't that old. It was 100 years old. And by the 1940s, it was much more efficient to remove teeth to cram those remaining teeth into the mouth, to use braces, to use headgear, to push those teeth back. And from the researchers that I've talked to, including those at Stanford and Kevin Boyd, Mariana Evans, on and on, they have, and, and uh, certainly Dr. Mike Mew and, and John Mew, they believe that these forms of orthodontics, these braces and headgear, can inhibit your ability to breathe properly because they can make a small mouth smaller. And along the way, exactly what's happening to you, your teeth will continually fall out of line oh, because the, the, the problem isn't your teeth. Oh. <laughs> your teeth want to grow in straight. They need a larger playing field to do so. So even in adulthood, you can go through a procedure that is not as extreme as it sounds to expand your mouth slightly to let your teeth naturally grow in straight. And when you do that, there's a good chance your airway is going to start to open up as well. So what is that procedure then? There are various procedures. There's dozens and dozens of these things. Some of them have you use a retainer at night like I used. It's called a homeoblock and it worked well for me. Some of them actually uh, insert this thing. They drill it into the top of your mouth. I know it seems, seems gnarly, and they do this much more quickly over the course of weeks or months. Mariana Evans has been doing this for adults and with younger people who were suffering from uh, extreme allergies, extreme sleep apnea, ex extreme asthma, and she has found that they no longer suffer from these problems. And to me, it makes perfect sense. You're, it's basic physics. You have more airway space. You're breathing easier. And, and so why not, in, in my, this is just my opinion. Again, I'm not a doctor, not a breathing therapist. But it seems to me to make more sense to improve your breathing and to permanently straighten your teeth this way by increasing your mouth size to the way it was supposed to have been before our mouths shrunk throughout evolution in the past 400 years. What I love about this, I mean, you've done all the heavy lifting for us, but but now now you have, thank God and thank you. Actually, no, just thank you. And um, it all makes so much sense. It's so easy to understand. You know, it's, it's so easy to join the dots. So um, congratulations, well done. Um, we need to go back to nose over mouth now. Um, is, isn't it amazing that people who could benefit um, financially, um, commercially, publicly, 
uh, i.e. in sport is where we're going to now. Some people still aren't on the breathing through the nose bus. Other other sports are, some aren't. Tell us about the early adopters, the people who've always known about it in sport, uh, people who are recent converts and and people who are still yet to to come and worship at this altar. (laughs) Well, I think breathing through the nose, especially when you've been breathing through the mouth for, for decades, is really hard. So we as Westerners want instant results and something that may take weeks or months to acclimate to where our performance is actually going to go down at the beginning. A lot of people sully on that idea because we don't want to see our performance go down, but that's exactly what is going to happen when you dramatically switch your breathing. But what they've found, and this is very clear, Dr. John Duyard has been studying this for for 40 years. Once you make that switch, you will be able to get more oxygen, you'll have more energy, you'll have better performance, your recovery will improve. There are so many benefits. But that labyrinth, that gauntlet you have to run, breathing through the nose and training yourself through the nose is a tough one which is why some people just give up on it. But again, I want to be clear that the benefits of nasal breathing during sport, during rest, during any time are are known and and are substantiated by a lot of data. And it's not just in through the nose, it's in and out through the nose. That is the best breath. And, and here's why. It's less important. The exhale is less important. But when you're exhaling through the nose as well, you're able to extract more oxygen and you save about 42% more moisture. So when you see these people out jogging and they're, <sighs> and sometimes they're carrying around water bottles, there's these belts now that have, you can carry around six little water bottles. And you see these people with their mouths just gaping open. They're losing so much of their liquid, so much of of their humidity in their bodies by breathing that way, that if they were just to shut their mouth, they wouldn't need to carry around their water bottles for a two-mile run. Can we say, can we go as far to say, James, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, to breathe in and out through your mouth um, as opposed to your nose might be like trying to walk on your hands as opposed to your feet. It's not what we were meant to do. To breathe through your mouth instead of your nose, I I, I think it's uh, we are so accustomed to be mouth breathers right now that that switch is hard. But you look at any other animal in the animal kingdom beyond like some bulldogs and pugs who have been bred in such a way to have these flat faces and they can't breathe at all. But all of these animals are breathing through their noses. Check out a racehorse. See how it's breathing when it's when it's running in a race. Check out a cheetah when it's running at 50 miles per hour, stalking down prey, they're all breathing through their nose. And as a species, we're no different from these animals. This is the route through which we should take breath. And no one's really arguing about this, but the fact that so many of us are just walking around with our mouths craned open thinking this is normal is, is what's really tragic. Um, but when you see a dog panting or a horse panting, that's that's not, we mustn't confuse that for, for them breathing. They are thermoregulating, aren't they? That's exactly right. And you're very rarely going to see a horse panting through its mouth. It, when you see a horse breathing through its mouth, that means it is extremely sick and it is in bad shape. So horses breathe through their noses. 
And I, you know, we're not horses, we're not dogs, but our, our physiology works in so much of the same way. Who doesn't want 20% more oxygen? That's what you get by breathing through the nose versus comparable breaths through the mouth. You get 20% more oxygen. If you think that that's not going to benefit you, whether or not you're exercising or whatever, you're, you're nuts. So here we go with another um, uh, versus little competition. So what about CO2 or oxygen? Let's, let's go in the populist way. Oxygen versus CO2. CO2 gets a terrible rap, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Rightfully so. You know, CO2 in, in the climate, in the atmosphere, there's too much of it. It's causing climate change. It's causing all kinds of issues. If you don't agree with that, I, I would suggest you take a deep dive, objective dive into the, into the science. And that's clearly what's going on here. So when people hear about CO2, they consider it this toxic waste gas. But what so many people don't realize, what I certainly didn't realize, is our bodies need a balance of CO2 and oxygen to function properly. And when we overbreathe, when we breathe over our metabolic needs, we tend to offload too much CO2. So we're CO2 deficient, which makes it harder for our red blood cells to deliver oxygen into all of the hungry cells in our muscles and organs and tissues. This gets really complicated. It's completely counterintuitive. But we've known this for about 120 years. And again, the science is very clear on this. Okay, and again, the balance of, of you know, breathing through your nose and the pressure with which that oxygen then enters your, your lungs is, is, is the right way to get the right combination of carbon and oxygen. You are going to be able to retain a lot more CO2 breathing through your nose because it's pressurized and it slows down those breaths. So a lot of people think that supplemental oxygen for a healthy body is beneficial. Uh, it certainly is if you're at altitude. It certainly is if you have extreme symptoms of COVID or if you have emphysema. Absolutely. But for a healthy body that has about you know 97% oxygen in, in your bloodstream, huffing oxygen is not going to do anything. <laughs> so we are going to breathe it in and breathe it out. And... So when you see a, a footballer or whomever at a sideline inhaling oxygen, this guy's already healthy. It's not doing anything. It is a complete placebo effect. You need CO2 to offload that, that oxygen. So many people actually need a little more CO2 in their bodies to function most efficiently. And you can do that by breathing more slowly, by breathing more deeply, and by breathing through your nose. And if you want to hold your breath for longer, it's not your body's desire for oxygen that makes you breathe. It's your, uh, it's your amygdala fearing, uh, suffocating from the inside out because of the buildup of CO2. And that's what you've got to get over there. That's a, that's, that's a handy trick, isn't it? So that need to breathe, a lot of people are wearing masks now. I've gotten you know hundreds of, of emails about this saying, there's no way I'm getting enough oxygen wearing this mask. There's, you know, impossible. I am I'm asphyxiating. I'm not going to wear this thing. So that need to breathe is not dictated by oxygen. It's dictated by rising levels of CO2. And you can see this by putting a pulse oximeter on your finger with a mask on your face and noticing that your oxygen is just fine. We're reacting to an increase of CO2 and having a higher threshold of CO2 can actually have so many benefits. 
If you were to hold your breath and breathe very slowly right now, you would feel maybe some warmth in your fingers. You would feel some warmth at the back of your neck. That's from an increase of circulation to these areas. And that's what breathing more slowly, breathing in line with your metabolic needs will allow you to do. See, since first reading your book and listening to your talk, um, I ride a bike to work every day. If I don't ride a bike, I run. Um, so I build in exercise into my commute. So it's done when I get to work and that has so many benefits psychologically. Uh, and I get home and I'm full of beans and I get to work and I'm full of beans and I'm just full of beans, James. I'm full of beans all day long. But it's getting colder uh, now. So I've tried to do this moving of attention uh, and this this different breathing. So it's a combination, isn't it? So it's mental and it's physical and it's you've got to be conscious, you've got to be present, you've got to be aware of what you're doing. And I've tried to make my arms warm you know, on my cycle commute in London. And it works. It bloody well works. <laughs> and this, what you're doing is a uh, very simple version of Tumo meditation. You know, those Tumo monks that Herbert Benson checked out in Dharamsala, what Wim Hof is doing in all of his minions, how they breathe in this certain way, and they visualize a fire within their bellies, and that fire is emanating throughout their bodies. This is how those, those monks were able to increase the temperature in their fingers by 17 degrees and keep it there and not get cold in freezing temperatures by using your breath and by using your brain. You've just mentioned a third uh, chap, Wim Hof. I can't believe you didn't guess him before. He's the man, isn't he? <laughs> He's the man. Great dude. <laughs> We've been uh, uh, corresponding a lot. I was lucky enough to interview him, put my reporter's hat back on. And, and Wim has really blown this stuff up. You know, uh, it's one thing to see a bunch of sweaty monks in Dharamsala and think, wow, that's, that's interesting, but that's so inaccessible. Yeah. These guys are, you know, wrapped up in these crazy cloths. They're, they're sitting there chanting some, some weird prayer. I don't get it. It's another thing to see a Dutch dude in an ice bath for two hours and afterwards suffer from no frostbite, no hypothermia. This is supposed to be medically impossible. He's done it. He's also been injected with E. coli and found that he could breathe in this way to battle off the endotoxin. And a lot of the researchers said, well, you're just a freak of nature. Yeah, you can do it. No one else can. So he took a group of, of uh, a control group of subjects and they had an, another control group and he taught them for four days how to do what he did. And every single one of them felt no symptoms of being injected with E. coli, which causes sweats and chills and just awfulness. So he's showing to Westerners that this stuff is within our grasp, that when we take control of our breathing, we can take control of so many aspects of our health. You know, his stunts, he has 26 world records, but his real contribution to the world, in my opinion, is to help people with autoimmune diseases, with asthma, with so many chronic problems, depression, anxiety, by training them in ways to really uh, allow their bodies to work more efficiently, to take control of their minds and to take control of so many different systems that are occurring with, within our bodies every day. But again, James, it's free magic. So I know you know this, but Wim had a book uh, published pretty much off the back mm -hmm. of yours, mm -hmm. you know, and it barely made the top 10. I mean, this is like gold. This is like Harry Potter, but for real. It's like, you know, why isn't this being taught in schools? Why isn't it being taught everywhere, especially during COVID, but, but and forever? You know, I just, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be 
I don't want to get a down on this, and, I, and I'm not, but I'm exasperated and frustrated by the fact that, that it's not, this book is not, yours and his book are not joint number one now and, until the end of time. I'm really, I don't understand. Wim Hof's method is pretty hard, okay? Uh, I'll be clear about this. The cold showers every day, the cold baths, this extreme breathing. You need to be a real self-starter to do this. And luckily, he's reached hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people with his techniques, which is fantastic. But you need to start off and say, hey, I'm going into this stuff. I'm going to do it. I'm going to show up every day. I'm going to make this happen. And that either happens with people who uh, have a, who are very intense and like those challenges or people who are at the end of their ropes, who have yeah. tried everything, who have been sick for 20 years, nothing is working, no drug is working. They're either going to die or they're going to fix themselves. So it's those two populations. But what I've found is even though what he's doing is so effective and I do his breath work, he calls it Wim Hof method. This stuff's been around thousands of years and he's the first to admit that, right? He just took something that was old and put it into a package that appealed to Westerners. But you can still get tremendous benefits by doing some very simple things, by breathing through your nose, by breathing that slow six seconds in, six seconds out, by adopting other healthy breathing habits. So you can add Wim Hof's method if you'd like. Again, I'm a huge fan with it. It works, but you don't have to go that far to really celebrate in these benefits. I, I get that, and it's a very sober answer to my overexcited uh, question. I'm just enthusiastic about this for my own good, uh, and I, I can only apologise. Um, what did you ask him? Oh, my God, we, we had a great conversation. So he is an extremely colourful guy, and if he was religious, if he was running a cult, I would say beware, everybody, because we would all belong <laughs> to the cult of whim. And a, a, a lot of people give him uh, a, a lot of gruff because of that, because he's so enthusiastic. But he's seen people transform every day with such simple things. So I asked him, you know, what he does when he wakes up. I said, hey, you breathe through your mouth when you're doing these exercises. What do you do the rest of the day? He's like, of course I breathe through my nose. Of course I breathe slowly. And that, that was a point I tried to make very clear is this mouth breathing, it's perfectly fine to breathe through your mouth when you're laughing. Right now I'm breathing through my mouth as I'm talking to you while you're doing these different practices. This is not chronic mouth breathing. So pranayama practices, some of them have you breathe through your mouth perfectly fine because the other 23 and a half hours of the day, you're breathing through your nose. So we talked about stuff like that. I, we talked about all the people that that he's effective and, and how he's really created this world movement of of empowerment for people who felt so powerless for so long. And did you get an insight? Did you get a sense of how come he's so special? Because I know that the, the method he talks about as the Wim Hof method is as old as time itself. Um, but he, he has got something else going on. You know, the fact that he can do these incredible things, even though he can pass some of it on to some people over four days, you know, he can do things that not very many other people can do. Is that because he has a natural ability um, that he was born with? Or is, is he, you know, is, is, there some of the, is there some of the mystic about him? What's your take on that? I think he's done it for so long. He's been doing this, you know, since his 20s. He's been doing ice baths and breathing meditations and yoga that it's just part of his fabric at this time. 
And I think another reason why he's gotten so big is because he has raised his hand and said, any researcher who wants to look at this, who wants to test me, I'll do whatever you want. He's not afraid of talking to his critics. He's not afraid of talking to academics or researchers. He's, say, he's saying, go for it. And what I find is quite strange is he's only been in, what, about a half a dozen studies. Why isn't everyone looking at what he's doing and how he's affecting people? Uh, I, I find it a little curious because it's, it's not subtle what he's enabling people to do with their health. It is, it, it, it's transformative. And they've had to rewrite biology textbooks for some of these experiments. So I'm so excited to see where he's going to go next, what else they're going to explore and find. Can you talk now about email apnea, please? So a lot of us, when we sit down to begin work, we're going to open our email up and there's 60 emails and they all need your attention and start stressing out. And then they hop on Twitter and then hop on the phone and yada, yada. So we become completely overwhelmed. And what we tend to do is we start to hold our breath because that's what associated with a stress response, either breathing too much or there's a tiger right around the corner. I got to be quiet, hold, <laughs> hold my breath. So we are so sensitized now to, to fear that we, we see an email from a coworker that gets us a little miffed and we react as though it's a severe threat against us. So one estimate is that 80% of office workers suffer from this. And I was curious to see if I suffered from it. So I put on a bunch of different sensors and I wore them for a week and found that whenever I sat down to start to work, my breathing went to hell. I'd have these huge drops in oxygen. My heart rate would speed up. It would slow down. It was so dysfunctional. So breathing this way is going to make us so much less able to function properly. It's going to make us feel like crap. It's going to lead to possible headaches. It's going to uh, impact our cognitive abilities on and on and on. And again, no one's refuting that. But the fact that so many of us are doing this and it's so easy to remedy. The way I remedied it is now when I sit down and there's 70 emails, I'm like, how am I ever going to get to this? And I've got all this other stuff to do in the day. I just set a timer. I use a, a very simple app that trains me with this tone to breathe in this rhythmic, slow pattern. And then I can just breathe in that pattern and I can feel it affecting me. I can feel my brain clearing so I can focus more on these tasks and get them done with in a more reasoned way. And that's a very simple hack. Email apnea is real. Uh, a researcher out here at UCSF has been studying it for 20, 30 years. She calls it some academic term, uh, continuous partial attention syndrome, of course, because she's an academic, but you can just call it email apnea. And uh, it's, it's, it's a real thing that can really affect your ability to work properly and can have health consequences later down the line. All right, so here we go again. Uh, we've we've done nose over mouth. We've done Wim Hof uh, versus Swami. Uh, we've done top jaw versus lower jaw. How about next we go for left nostril versus right nostril? 
So in yoga, there's been this practice called Nadi Shadhana. I've, I've heard that pronounced, that last one, several different times. I'm sure I'm butchering it, but, but that's what it is. And it's, all it is is alternate nostril breathing. So if you've been in a yoga class, there's a good chance someone's done this either before or after the class where you place one finger or your thumb on one nostril, and inhale through the left, and then exhale through the right. It turns out that there is actual science behind this. So inhaling through your left nostril will elicit a more calming effect. It's believed to cool your body. We know that the heart rate will lower, blood pressure will lower, and it will stimulate more of the right side of your brain that is associated with more creative thoughts. Now, breathing in through your right nostril has the opposite effect. It heats your body up, speeds your heart rate, increases blood pressure, and <laughs> stimulates the other side, the logical side of your brain. Yogis have been doing this for thousands of years, but the fact that researchers have actually explored this with EEGs, EKGs, blood pressure, all of that, and found that it really has an effect on us, I think is pretty fascinating. Okay, so this is a good takeaway. So, uh, we, so if we're feeling stressed, yes, we cover up the right nostril, or hold the right nostril, mm -hmm. and we breathe in through the left. Do we have to breathe out through the right, or do we go out through the it's, left whilst it, breathing in through the left? It is the inhale through the right that is associated with the stimulating heating effect. So you can exhale right. through the right, and that's fine. And there so, are dozens and dozens of different ways of doing this, but I should note that our nostrils are covered with erectile tissue so our bodies are, yes, yes, it's, and it's the same as you know where, it engorges yeah. with blood as the same as you know where, and it, it becomes stiff. Um, so through, <laughs> sorry, I was trying to keep a straight face for that, and now I've, I've ruined it. But, but throughout the day, our bodies are naturally shifting air from one nostril to the other. So... The fact that our bodies are naturally doing this is great. If you're breathing through the mouth, you get zero of these benefits. So, so your nose can get a hard on, is what you're saying? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, someone mentioned this to me. It brings a whole different context to the whole Cyrano de Bergerac um, story. Uh, oh, of we'll, course we'll, it we'll does, just, yes. we'll just Pinocchio story. We'll just kind <clears> of <throat> leave that right, right there. Well, hang on, we can't because there's also that oh, no. link. Is it a myth or is it true about when you sneeze? You know, is it like having an orgasm? What's the story there? Is, are they linked to what you're talking about? There is no other organ, no other structure more closely associated, linked to your genitals than your nose. <laughs> give us, oh, just give us another minute on this, James, please. Oh, no. I, I, I know I shouldn't have mentioned the Pinocchio thing. So so it's it's so closely linked with some people that when they get sexually stimulated, they start uncontrollably sneezing and they aren't able to breathe through their nose. It's common enough that this is called honeymoon rhinitis. Um, and, and enough people have it that it's, that it's actually a chronic problem. And what an unfortunate thing. I, my heart goes out to these people right when it's showtime. You know, it's not the sexiest thing in the world to start sneezing or, or to start panning or to start having your, your nose get, get runny. It's the ultimate tell as well, isn't it, if you know about it, I suppose. 
Yeah. So next time you see someone sneeze in a public place, you know, uh, don't let your mind go there that maybe this person is getting extremely sexually aroused, you know, on the train across from you. That's a that's a dirty thought. Yeah, but also you might want to check out who they're looking at. Or you might want to get the hell out of the car and, and maybe take the next one. So so maybe it can be very revealing about people. Maybe this is a helpful thing. I, I take that back. Okay. Um, now, your book is backed up by loads of scientific papers, which is really important because it's such an entertaining book. And many people have written books not dissimilar to, to yours in the past, not necessarily about breathing, but about other things. Um, and, you know, a lot of it's anecdotal or, you know, uh, very sort of conveniently chosen research to, to back up a good yarn. Yours is different. So, so let's get that out of the way, shall we? Because it's very important. I knew that no one was going to believe this stuff unless there was a firm foundation of scientific evidence behind it, which is why there's about 500 scientific references available for free on my website. There's x-rays, there's data sheets, there's all of that. It also helps that, as I mentioned before, my father-in-law is a pulmonologist and my brother-in-law is an ER doctor. And there's no way they would let something slide in, in this book. And they read every single line of this. I was also lucky enough to work with over 12 different doctors and researchers, some of whom are at the top institutions, who fact-checked and went line through line through this, through this book because I'm making some seemingly outrageous claims. I'm saying that your breathing can affect your posture. I'm saying that people who breathed in a certain way were able to overcome scoliosis, were over to overcome E. coli injections, were able to overcome extreme cold by breathing. This stuff sounds impossible. It sounds like new age garbage. So I spent months and months and months accumulating as much scientific evidence and having that evidence checked out by researchers. I've read your book now twice. Um, I will, con I will continue, to continue to read it for the rest of my life. It's one of those I will read for the rest of my life books. It's in my top 10, James, and I mean that sincerely. And I've, I've listened to hours of you talking. I've watched video um, of you talking and um, giving talks. And yeah, I'm still, during our conversation now, I'm still re-fascinated by it all because I still can't believe, you know, my, my uh, producer, Mira, is sitting opposite me and she's shaking her head. She's in wonder. You know, when you talk about about it affecting your posture and all the things that can be cured or, or addressed or improved by it, by the way we breathe, the, the respect and regard we ha have and hold for our breath, you know, I still am completely nonplussed by why the... Why isn't breathing taught in schools, James? I think it will be. I, I really I'm, I'm inspired by what's happening now that a lot of teachers have written me. A lot of researchers have, have written. Um, there's some conversations with the UN and UNESCO starting up. So I, th I hope it will be. I hope that people start to understand that, again, this stuff is simple. It's accessible to anyone. It's free. And, and why not do it? We know that you can really improve your health in so many ways. And even if it's five minutes a day, even if it's two minutes a day to begin class like that, I think it could really have a big benefit for both teachers and students. Okay, just give us a quick, uh, if you could put the five minute curriculum together, what would it be? The first thing, uh, this is gonna sound very predictable to you, is breathe through your nose. Find a way of breathing through your nose. Practice nasal breathing all the time. The second thing was to start off by breathing slowly. I would just do that six seconds in, six seconds out, very calmly. We know that when you do that, more 
oxygen is going to be delivered to the brain, the heart rate's going to go down, and the systems of the body are going to enter this peak state uh, called coherence. And we've seen that through studies. So just by breathing at that rate, and if you start to feel stressed, you can breathe in to a count of about four and breathe out to a count of about six. And you can feel your heart as you're doing this. When you breathe out, your heart rate slows down. So at any time in the day, you can exhale more than you're inhaling and you can slow your heart rate down, you can calm your body, and you can actually increase circulation by doing this. These are different tools in the toolkit that anyone can use at any time. Okay, uh, and for us grown-ups, uh, can we get high on our natural supply? If you've ever done Wim Hof's breathing, if you've ever done Tumo, the, the answer is a resounding yes. And I think that this is one of the reasons why so many people have glommed on to this stuff. It's extremely exhilarating. And the best part about it is you feel amazing for hours afterwards. Is there a particular method? Is it is it Vim's method or, or would that be, you know, because you've done crazy three-hour holotropic classes, haven't you? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I wanted to understand what that was all about. That is uh, too steep of a learning curve for a lot of people. I don't think that that's necessary. We know that holotropic is very effective for, for people with mental health issues. Uh, there have been so many studies uh, looking at that. But I think as a, as a primer for people, WIM is it's about a 20-minute session. It is extreme breathing and inhaling and exhaling as much as you can to purposely stress your body out, then you hold your breath and you take a single breath and you do it all over again. I know a lot of people are thinking, why do I want to stress my body out? I'm stressed enough with the election, with COVID, with my job, whatever. The point of this is to purge that stress out of your body, to focus it in one practice so that the rest of the day you can be completely chill. And that's what Wim Hof method does. So he calls a Wim Hof method. Again, this stuff has been around for a long time. I do it a few times a week. I love it. Uh, you can call it whatever you want. There's other pranayamas that do basically the same thing, but all this stuff works because it's eliciting the same reactions within our bodies. So it's like it's like bleeding the radiators at home. It resets the system, and for them to be reset, they have to be there. There has to be an injection of like dynamic turbulence, basically. That is a beautiful analogy that I'm going to steal and use on future interviews. <laughs> Hopefully that, that's okay. That's, that's exactly what it, what it does. It, it compresses all of this. So instead of having this low-grade chronic stress throughout the day where we go throughout our days half asleep and we go throughout you know every night half awake, it's to just focus that, get it all out, and then move on. And you can feel this in your body, and I can certainly sense it in my brain and my cognitive abilities. If I start my day that way, I'm ready to roll. I've also heard it's a killer remedy for a hangover. I've never tried it. Have you done that? It is just anecdotally. I Man, I wish someone would, would study this stuff, but I have done it. I had a really bad hangover once and heard that that worked. And I went downstairs and I did it and I felt so much better, uh, a, a rapid change in my body. And it beats taking four Advil and, and walking around groggy the rest of the day. And that's the standard Wim Hof. So that's the, the three lots of 30 and holding your breath for 15 uh, seconds and then exhaling. That, it's just that, just one of those. 
sessions. That's that's three three rounds of that. It's about twenty minutes. You can see this stuff online. It's free. So he okay. distributes this for for free to anyone. It's really hard though to to see someone doing this and try to do it. And you're watching the video and then you're doing it yourself. This guy Chuck McGee, who's out here uh, near San Francisco, near the Bay Area, runs free sessions every Monday night at 9 p.m. PT and 11 a.m. PT. And he asked for nothing. This is a guy who had type 1 diabetes. He had hypertension. He had depression. He had chronic pain and was able to overcome so much of those problems by breathing. And he's been so transformed that th this guy is a heart of gold. He's giving this away for, for free to everyone, not asking for hangouts because he wants to help people. He was the fourth. <laughs> he so was. You so so I just, I've just ticked these guys off. They, they <laughs> yeah. were just lined up like like ducks, you know. And just <laughs> uh, I, that was not on purpose, uh, but uh, I'm glad it, it worked out. I didn't have to ask you for any of them. So um, we can get him on YouTube, I suppose, can't we, this guy? He has all of his sessions available on Instagram, um, and, and again, it's free. And also he did for, for international, he does 11 a.m. on Sunday, 11 oh, a.m. PT, which is, which is much better for, for you guys. The sessions are available recorded, but, you know, this could just be me being a weirdo, but there's something special about doing it live with a few hundred other people from all over the world. And you're just sort of connected with your breath. And uh, I prefer to do the live versions. I just get something a little more out of it. But you can do the recorded versions as well. What's his name again, please? Sorry, one more time. Chuck McGee. Chuck McGee. Okay. Yeah. Got it. His organization is called Iced Viking Breathworks. And uh, he has all the information on his site as well. Right, James, before you go, one more question. It's the biggie. I've never heard you've been asked this before. Are you ready for it? I think so. Who are the best natural breathers, men or women? Oh, there's no way I can answer that. So I'm just going to beat around the bush very, very diplomatically here. The best natural breathers are the ones who look at breathing, who are aware of breathing, and who take breathing under their control. I should mention that studies have shown that women tend to breathe more, tend to overbreathe more than men, and tend to breathe through their mouth more, more than men. But what's so great about breathing is no matter how we've been breathing before, we can change this. And when we change it, when we take it under our conscious control, we can change our bodies and we can affect how our minds work. Oh, that sounded very practiced. <laughs> It wasn't. You. No one has ever asked me that question. I'm surprised you did. Uh, you, you know, I, I hopefully I'm not going to get flack from that. I'm. I'm just sort of providing information that I have found. You shouldn't get flack for anything from anyone, James Nestor. Um, is there anything you'd like to say before you go? Because we're done here. But I can't thank you for your time enough. Time is priceless. Um, you're very generous with it. I know it's good for your book. It's good for your job. It's good for your living. But nevertheless, thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Just the fact that uh, hearing how excited you are about this stuff and, you know, after six months of, of doing five of these interviews a day, I'm so excited about it as well. And I think it's that enthusiasm that is going to allow more people to tune into this stuff and really start to take control of, of their lives. So you've done so much for, for that, to bring that awareness. So I need to thank you 
for having me on here again and for spending this time asking me these questions. Well, I can't wait for our next conversation and I can't wait to, to meet you one day because let's make that happen, James Nestor. That would be fantastic. Hopefully at a breathing class sometime. Awesome, pal. Awesome. Breath, the new science of a lost art is out today and I hope it's out uh, until kingdom come. Goodbye, James. Goodbye. James Nestor, what a hero. Can't wait for what he's going to write next. Um, but I'll just carry on reading that book literally, you know, every other day, bits and bobs of it for the rest of my life to remind me to keep breathing properly. Box breathing, how to breathe to get to sleep, how to breathe to calm down, left nostril, right nostril, in your ladies' chamber. Please review and rate and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>